Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn to back to James chapter 1. And this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. And if I've entitled this message, Just Say No. Last week, we looked at the first few verses in the book of James. And just to remind you that James was the half-brother of Jesus. James did not become a follower of Jesus until after the resurrection and as a result of the resurrection. James also became the leader of the church in Jerusalem in the AD 40s, which is when he wrote this book. And it's the most practical book about Christian living in all of Scripture, as it covers a variety of topics. And last week I shared with you that some have labeled the book of James the bossiest book in all of Scripture. And last week we talked about trials. We talked about how if we're going to have a faith that works, that we must pass the trials of life. And how do we pass the trials of life? We grow in his likeness. We gain his wisdom. We grasp our identity in Christ, and then we garner and look forward to the reward of eternal life. This morning, we're going to look at the other side of the coin of trials. The other side of that coin is called temptation. Temptation is something that each one of us struggles with in our lives. As we're surrounded by temptation in our culture. But what I want to make clear to you is there is a difference between a trial and a temptation. Trials are external. Trials are what happens to us. Trials are any difficulty in life that may threaten our relationship with God. Trials usually are out of our control. Trials are something that just happens to us. However, a temptation is internal. A temptation is what happens in us. A temptation is an inner enticement to sin. A temptation is a natural desire to do evil which is fed by the misled attractiveness of sin. Giving into a temptation is within our control. And I may have used this example before to talk about what temptation looks like. If I have, forgive me, and act like you've never heard it before. Um, but a man was trying to lose weight. So he informed his co-workers that he would no longer be bringing donuts to the office. And he knew it was going to be hard to resist the temptation because every morning to work, he always drove by the bakery. But he committed himself to be strong. He committed himself to resist the temptation. But one morning, his co-workers were shocked. They were surprised that he arrived at this office with a huge box of donuts. And they looked at him and they reminded him of the diet that he said he was on. And he replied to them, well, this is a very special box of donuts. He said, when I left the office this morning, I knew I was going to drive by that bakery. And I just wondered if maybe it might be in the Lord's will for me to stop and get this box of donuts. He said, I wasn't sure, so I prayed, Lord, if you want me to stop at the bakery, if you want me to get a box of donuts, please open up a parking space right there in the front. And, the, and he said, Lord, you know how hard those parking spots are to get. So if it's your will, open that spot right there so I can just walk in and get that box of donuts. 
So his co-workers looked at him and they said, so was the parking place there? The man replied, it was a miracle. He said, the eighth time I drove around the block, there was a parking space. There it was. And I knew it was God's will. You see, this man could have easily gone into that office without that box of donuts. But here's the problem. He just could not say no. He could not resist the temptation to have a donut or two or three because if you like donuts, you know you just can't have one. I know that's a Pringles commercial, but you just can't have one. And he worked hard to get that donut. He drove around the block eight times to find that parking spot. He wanted that donut. He just couldn't say no. In our Christian life, If we want to have a faith that works, if we want to have a growing and a vibrant relationship with Christ, we have to learn how to say no to temptation. And this morning, as we look at James chapter 1, 13 to 18, I want each one of us to gain and to walk away with a biblical understanding of temptation. Let's look at James chapter 1 and read verses 13 to 18. James says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we could be the first fruits of his creatures. The first point I want to make this morning is, and I want you and for me to understand, is temptation is a product of evil. Temptation is a product of evil. James is telling his audience, which if you remember, his audience are those 12 tribes that had been scattered as a result of the diaspora, or a result also known as the persecution back in Acts chapter 8. And these Jews of these 12 tribes have been scattered all through the world. And that's the audience to which James is writing. And James is letting them know that an incorrect response to temptation is saying that God is tempting me. Remember, James just got through talking about trials. And now he's talking about temptations. He's making the point that, yes, God will test the faith of his people, but God will never tempt his people. You see, the reason God brings trials into our lives is to develop our faith and to draw us to him and to turn us to him. However, temptations are meant to destroy our faith and to turn us away from God and to take us away from him. Therefore, temptation is rooted in evil. Temptation is contrary to who God is and what he desires for us. Because God is holy. God is perfect in every way. And God does not tempt because he himself cannot be tempted. God does not tempt because God is never the author or the cause of temptation or anything else that is evil. And because temptation is an impulse to sin... 
And since God is not susceptible to sin or any desire for evil, he cannot be seen as desiring that temptation be brought about in the lives of those who love him. You see, while God may test us to strengthen our faith, God never seeks to induce and introduce sin into our lives. God never baits us to sin. God has no desire to weaken our faith or our testimony. And in Scripture, there is example after example that God brings trials and tests into the lives of his people. You look at the book of Job, it's all about Job being tested by God through Satan. Job had everything in the world, the wealthiest man alive. Satan got God's permission to take everything away from Job, except the only thing he couldn't do was kill him. And he did everything but kill him. But through it all, Job remained steadfast in his faith. And when you get to Job chapter 42, you see that Job was blessed with so much more than he had to begin with because he passed the test and because of his faithfulness. I think of Daniel when he was thrown in the lion's den because he refused to quit praying and how God protected him. I think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were thrown in the fiery furnace because they refused to bow down to the idol or to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. But yet, when they were in the fire, it says another one was with them. And that was the Son of God, Jesus himself. We see how God protected them during that test. We see how God tested Abraham in sacrificing Isaac in Genesis 22.1. It says exactly that God tested Abraham by asking him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. In Judges 2.22, it says God tested Israel by allowing pagan nations to surround his people, and he did that to test their faithfulness and their loyalty. There are a lot of examples of God testing his people in Scripture, but there is not one shred of evidence that God has ever tempted his people in Scripture. Satan, not God, is the author of evil. Satan, not God, is the master deceiver and the master architect of temptation. And Satan can make anything look good. Satan can even twist Scripture. Satan, did you know, is a student of the Word of God? Satan knows the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan is called an angel of light. In John eight forty four, Satan is called the father of lies. And this is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden when you go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Satan, through the serpent, approaches Eve and says, Did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree of the garden? Twisting the words of God to tempt Eve. And then in verses 4 and 5, Satan says, You will not certainly die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. There was actually some truth in that statement. Their eyes were opened, but not in the way that Satan said they would be opened. Through the opening of their eyes and the opening of their hearts and gaining a knowledge of good and evil, sin was introduced into the world. You see, God did not tempt Eve and Adam. Satan did. And even though God does not tempt us, if we are not careful... As James says here in verse 13, he says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted of God. If we're not careful, a test can lead it to temptation. If you internalize a test that God brings into your life, it could cause a temptation inside of you. It could cause an inner struggle inside of you 
What do I mean by that? If you're having a financial difficulty, it may cause you to question God's providence. It may question you to, call, to question God's provision. If you have the death of a loved one in your family, it may cause you to or tempt you to question God's love. If you see the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer, which is exactly what James's audience was dealing with after they had been dispersed, they were suffering and they were seeing the wicked prosper. And Matt prayed for the Christians in China this morning. That's exactly what's happening in China. This exact same thing. And it's amazing to me the resiliency and the faith of the Christians in China in the midst of the testing that they're facing. I don't know if you've kept up, but if they don't renounce their faith in many locations, they have to quit their job. If they don't renounce their faith, their kids can't go to school. And churches across China are being raised. I don't mean raised up. I mean being torn down by the government. Steeples and crosses are being removed. So there is no indication of where a church might be meeting. And churches have to be registered with the government of China. I wonder what we would do if we were faced with those circumstances here in our nation. Will we renounce our faith or stay strong to our faith? And while I'm so thankful for the Christians in China who are staying strong to their faith and, and passing the test, but, but in their situation, they could be tempted to question God's justice and God's love or even His existence. You see, if we're going to have a faith that works by overcoming temptation... It begins with the realization or the understanding that it is not from God or of God. And because God is sinless, because God is holy, He can't stand the sight of sin. And if God can't stand the sight of sin, and if God doesn't want us to sin, but He wants us to be holy and set apart, why in the world would He put something in front of us that would cause us to sin? You see, God will not. God cannot. God does not tempt us. Try us, yes. Tempt us, no. The second thing where I'm going to spend the rest of the crux of the message is verses 14 and 15. You see, temptation is, is not of God. It's a product of evil. But also temptation presents a choice. Let me read 14 and 15 for context. Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin fully grown, it gives birth to death. So the question arises, if God is not to blame for temptation, if God is not to blame for tempting us, who is? And even though temptation is from Satan, because Satan is the source of all evil, don't blame Satan for the choices that you make. Don't say, the devil made me do it. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, verses 12 and 13. They played something called the blame game. In verse 12, Adam said, listen to this, God, the woman you gave me made me do it. Men, don't ever say that. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day, be nice. The woman you gave me, he blames God. He said, God, it's your fault that I ate the Eiffel because you gave me this woman. So he blamed God and he blamed Eve. He didn't take responsibility for himself. And then in verse 13, it's Eve's turn. She'd just been blamed by Adam. So what does she do? She blamed the serpent. 
She said, the, the, serp, the serpent deceived me, and get this, and I ate. Catch that word, I. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam blamed God and Eve, and Eve blamed the serpent. It reminds me of growing up when I would get in trouble with my brother. We'd be fighting. My parents would come in. You know, they'd break us up. The first thing we'd say, well, he hit me first. He started it. It's his fault. Or we'd get in trouble with a group of friends, and my parents loved this excuse. Well, they made me do it. You know what my parents would say? And this is a legendary saying of every parent. Well, if they jumped off a bridge, would you? Did they put a gun to your head? No. And then the consequences followed. You see, ultimately, we are to blame. We are responsible for the choices we make. Not Satan, not God. And this idea of personal responsibility has been an issue since the Garden of Eden, and it's still an issue in our culture today. You see, we want to blame others. We want to blame circumstances. We want to blame God. We want to blame Satan. We want to blame everyone but ourselves for the bad choices we make. And my wife is a teacher, and if you're a teacher, you can relate too. I hear this all the time. A child's not doing well in school. Not all, but many parents, who do they blame? They don't blame the teacher. They don't blame the child. They blame the teacher for their own child's performance. And then you go down the list. Is the child listening in class? No. Is the child coming to school? No. Is the child prepared? No. Is the child turning in work? No. Is the child studying? No. But somehow the teacher is to blame for the child's performance and not the child. I, growing up, I wish my parents would have put just a little bit more responsibility on the teacher. Some of you will get that later after you wake up. In my house, I was responsible for my work. I was responsible for my behavior. I was responsible for the grades I made. There were no questions about the teacher. There were no excuses. I was at fault. It was not guilty until proven innocent. I mean, it was not innocent until proven guilty. It was guilty, and there was no innocence. That's the way it was in my house. I was taught personal responsibility, and I'm sure many of you were too. But when it comes to temptation... Each of us individually, we have a choice to make. And the choice is, do we give in to temptation or do we not give in to temptation? And when we are tempted and give in to temptation, it is done by our own evil, by our own fleshly desire. And notice I said desire instead of desires. Because in verses 14 and 15, the Greek word for desire is epithemia. And I know a lot of translations in verse 14 have the word desires. In verse 15, they switch back to desire. But it's singular in both cases. And there was purpose in James using the singular word for desire. Because what James was doing, he was indicating a natural tendency towards sin. He was indicated anything we long for that God has prohibited. Because our tendency is not to turn away from temptation. But our tendency is to give in to temptation. I go back to what Paul said in Romans 7, 15 to 20. You can turn there if you'd like. Romans 7, 15 to 20. Paul said, I don't understand what I'm doing. If Paul didn't understand what he was doing, God bless us. 
Paul said, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law of its good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but it's the sin that lives in me. Who was Paul blaming for his actions? Who was Paul blaming for the choices that he made? He was blaming himself. Why? Because of the sin that was living in him. And this is exactly what James is talking about. And James uses two metaphors to drive this point home. First, he says in verse 14, when one is tempted, he's drawn away. That phrase, drawn away, it's a fishing metaphor. And it's referring to bait on a fisherman's hook that entices the fish. And once that fish takes the bait and grabs hold of that hook, it is dragged away and it is reeled in. And the fish has no idea what is underneath that bait. You would think after all these years that fish would eventually learn by looking at each other disappear that there was something under that bait that was not good. But they haven't learned yet. Guess what? Neither have we. But that fish has no idea what is underneath that bait. He has no idea that life as he knows it is about to be over. And I believe if the fish knew what was going to happen before he took the bait, he, had, he wouldn't have taken the bait to begin with. You see, when Satan tempts us, when we take the bait, we have no idea what we're getting into. And if we knew what was going to happen when we give into temptation, we wouldn't do it. Because giving into temptation, it never turns out well. The second metaphor, he says, is a hunting metaphor. He says he is enticed by his own evil desires. What James is referring to is an animal caught by a trap because it went for the bait. And there's a great example of this and how the Southeast Asian monkey is captured. And some of you may know this. What they do to capture this particular monkey is they take a melon. They hollow at the melon and leave an opening in the melon just big enough for that monkey to put his fist in. And at the end of that melon, they put a piece of fruit. And what happens is that monkey comes along, he sees the trap. He puts his hand in the melon. Why? Because he wants the fruit. But then he realizing something has gone wrong quick. He can't get the fruit in his hand out at the same time. You know what he does? He doesn't let go. He holds on to that fruit for dear life. And then before he knows it, he's realized it. He realizes that he's trapped. And he's now in the hands of the hunters. All he would have to do is to let go. And he would be free. But because of the choice that he made, he has now gone down a path that he really didn't want to go down. You see, when Satan tempts us, when we take the bait, we get hooked we are enticed. We are dragged away, not knowing the consequences of our actions. And I heard this saying a long time ago. I don't know where it came from or who said it, but I think it's great. And I think it's true. It, it says this, sin will take you further than you want to go. 
You know what giving in to temptation does? It takes you further and further away from God. Then it says, sin will cost you more than you want to pay. When you give it to temptation, it may cost you your job. When you give in to temptation, it may cost you your family. When you give in to temptation, it may cost you friendships. When you give it to temptation, it may cost you your life. And the last part of that saying is sin keeps you longer than you want to stay. Just doing it once turns into two times and three times and four times. And before you know it, you are living in continual sin and you find it difficult to escape because you refuse to let go of the bait. Here's the problem with temptation. It's called a misplaced focus. You see, instead of focusing on what we have in God and who we are in God, we focus and long for what the world has to offer. In 1 Peter 2.11, Peter gave us this admonition. He said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter said, Abstain from evil. Abstain from fleshly desires. Why? Because he says once you do, you're in the battle for your life. In 1 John 2, 17, John wrote, The world and its desires, meaning the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. And this is the problem with sin in the first place. This is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. God prohibited Adam and Eve from eating of one tree in the garden. Only one tree. They can have everything else. And even though they can have everything else, they could not keep their hands off the one tree that God told them not to touch and eat of. Why? Because instead of looking at what was available to them, they looked at what was off limits and not available to them. And that's what we do when we give it in temptation. Instead of looking at what God has available for us, we look at what is off limits to us. And for some reason, that seems more enticing and more intriguing than what God offers. But before we judge Adam and Eve, we do the same thing. We see a sign that says, don't touch wet paint. Yeah, you're guilty too. What do we do? We touch it. That's the first thing we do. You say to a child, don't touch. You turn around and walk away. What did the child do? They touched it. At a restaurant, this is the one I love, the server brings you a plate and says, this is the play, hot plate, don't touch. First thing you do, you grab it from the server's hands, not believing them that it's hot. You see, when we give it temptation, when we satisfy our own desire, when we lose our focus, we commit sin. And this just does not happen out of nowhere. In fact, I believe there is a dangerous recipe for saying yes to temptation that takes place within us. And I believe it's in these verses right here. The first ingredient for the recipe of temptation is deception. It's deception. A grandfather asked his grandson, why don't you ever eat your gravy? The grandson looked at his grandfather and replied, Grandpa, you just never know what's going to be underneath it. You see, gravy, sauce, can almost make anything look good and taste good, except maybe liver. I'm not sure that's ever happened. But but this is exactly what Satan did to Eve. This is exactly what Satan did to Adam. He deceived Eve, and she chose to believe the words of Satan over the words of God. 
And for a Christian to be deceived by Satan, it's a result of doubting God and not believing God. And we don't believe God when he tells us not to do something. And if Satan says to us, like he did Eve in Genesis 3.1, did God really say that? You know what our answer should be? Yes, he really said that, and yes, he really meant it. Not only does Satan deceive Adam and Eve, he deceives us. Because Satan can make sin look very good. Second ingredient of temptation is desire. That temptation appeals to our desires, to our attract, and it's attractive. Sin is attractive, but hides the fact that it will destroy Genesis 3, 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some, ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That wrong desire began with a wrong thought. A wrong desire will begin with the wrong thought. That's why God said it's so important to keep our minds pure. That's why 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul said, Demolish every stronghold by taking every thought captive in obedience to Christ. If we don't have wrong thoughts, we won't have wrong desires. It's all about our focus. The third ingredient of temptation is disobedience. You see, that wrong desire leads to a wrong thought and it leads to wrong action. We act on that desire, and we do what displeases God instead of what pleases Him. We choose to satisfy ourselves instead of satisfying God. And if we're disobedient to God, and sin becomes a lifestyle, it leads to the fourth ingredient called death. Genesis 3, 7 and 8, it says, The eyes of both of them were open, they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, Adam and Eve brought deadly consequences upon themselves because of the choices that they made. And see, we must understand that there are consequences to our sin. There are consequences to the choices that we make. Jake, Galatians 6, 7, Paul wrote, We reap what we sow. If you sow thoughts of sin in your life, if you have sinful desires in your life, that's what you're going to sow. And sin just does not affect us. Sin affects others. Sin, yes, sin destroys us. It will destroy us physically. It will destroy us mentally. It will destroy us relationally. It will destroy us emotionally. It will destroy us spiritually. But our sin also destroys others. And it destroys our relationship with God. Adam and Eve lost what they had with God and what they had with each other because of the choice that they make to give in to the temptation of Satan. And see, just because you experience temptation, though, does not mean that you have sinned. Because temptation in and of itself is not a sin. Every one of us is tempted. Do you know that Jesus was tempted? Matthew 4, 1 through 11, it talks about the temptation of Jesus. However, in, the, in his temptation, Jesus never sinned. Hebrews four fifteen. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. The issue is not the temptation itself. The issue is how you choose to respond to the temptation that you're presented with. You can choose to resist it, or you can choose to give in to it. And by looking at the example of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 and how he dealt with temptation, we find a remedy for overcoming temptation. I gave you a recipe of what temptation looks like, but here's a remedy of how to overcome temptation from the life of Jesus. The first thing we need to do is we need to feast on God's word. What did Jesus do when he was faced with the temptation that Satan gave him to turn the stones into bread? And by the way, why was his first temptation to turn stones into bread? If you remember, Jesus had just been, uh, just been baptized. And then uh, Matthew 4.1 says, The Spirit led him into the wilderness, and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And at the end of his time of fasting, that's when Satan tempted him. And by the way, Satan tempted Jesus at his weakest moment. Guess when Satan tempts us? When we're most vulnerable, when we're weak, when we're discouraged, when we're down. That's when Satan really attacks. But what did Jesus do when Satan looked at him and said, Jesus, turn these stones into bread? You know what Jesus did? He quoted scripture. He he quoted Deuteronomy 8.3. It says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. When faced with temptation, use scripture. Make God's Word a priority. That's why it's so important to be in God's Word. That's why it's so important to stay in God's Word. That's why it's so important to meditate God's Word and hide it in our hearts. So if you want to overcome temptation, the first thing you need to do is you need to feast on God's Word. The second thing you need to do is you need to focus on your relationship with God. After that temptation didn't work, Satan took Jesus to the highest pinnacle in Jerusalem, the pinnacle of the temple. And interestingly enough, Satan introduced a new tactic. He quoted scripture to Jesus. He quoted a verse from the book of Psalms talking about that that if we fall, the angels will be there to pick, pick us up. But he twisted it. And he told Jesus, Jesus, he said, if if you devote, he said, if you jump. From this pinnacle, he said, the angels will come and rescue you. You know what Jesus did? He looked at Satan. He quoted scripture again. He quoted Deuteronomy 6.16, which says, never test the Lord your God. Devote yourself to God. Think about the things of God. And when we devote ourselves to God and think about the things of God, we give Satan no space to work. And nothing this world has to offer is worth taking if it means giving up our relationship with Christ. Worship God daily and serve Him only. And that's what Jesus said at the end of the third temptation. When Satan said, Jesus, if you'll bow down before me, I'll give you all this. What's ironic about that? Jesus already owned everything, at least from what I can tell in Scripture. And Satan says, if, if, if you bow down and worship me, this will all be yours. Again, Jesus quoted scripture and said, you are to worship God and serve him only. The third, the third remedy for temptation 
is to flee the source of temptation. This comes from Genesis 39, the, the familiar story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He wound up being bought by Potiphar. And because of his diligence, because of his devotion to the Lord, he was raised up over Potiphar's household. He was over everything except for one thing, and that was Potiphar's wife. Scripture says Joseph was a strong and handsome man. Potiphar's wife tried to lure Joseph to, to lay with her. Joseph resisted, continually resisted. And then one day Joseph was in her presence, and she asked him one more time. He said no again, but as he ran this time, she took his coat and then she told Potiphar that, that he messed with her. And because of that, he was thrown in prison, but God used him there. And that's a whole other series of messages. But what did Joseph do when he was faced with temptation? He fled the source of the temptation. You see, on many occasions, we put ourselves in situations to be tempted. And in our lives, we need to set boundaries. We need to live by boundaries. We need to have others hold us accountable. And what leads to giving into temptation is being drawn away from God and allowing our own sinful desires to take over. And then we nurture that desire, and then we feed that desire. So to stop the temptation, to keep from sinning, we must starve that sinful desire by disconnecting ourselves from the source of sin. You got to starve that desire by disconnecting yourself from the source of sin. James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Remove the source of sin and replace it with the one who conquered sin. That's exactly what James is saying. And there's no doubt that, sins look, that sin looks good. There's no doubt that sin can be enjoyable and fun in the moment. That's exactly what Hebrews 11.25 says. It says sin is, is pleasant, is pleasurable for how long? For only a season. But then a few moments of pleasure can lead to a lifetime of regret. Those few moments of enjoying sin can lead to a lifetime of regret. We see it all around us. If a married man or a woman has an affair, it could cost them their marriage. It could hurt and destroy two families. Joni and I went to a shepherding conference in Lexington. Uh, it was for pastors and their wives, a time for renewal and refreshment. And uh, one of the breakout sessions we went to was a breakout session on grace marriage. Uh, it's an organization that puts out small group studies and, and a grace marriage material for churches. And the, the guy that was facilitating, and he, he said something that, that had never struck me before, but it struck me then. He said 80% of churches allocate 0% of their budget to strengthening families and marriage enrichment. And then he said this, and this is what really got me. He said all these churches pour all this money into youth ministry and children's ministry. You know what? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm a student minister at heart. I love students. But then he said this that made it make sense. He said, students are more impacted by what happens at home than what happens at church. Think about that. He says churches are pouring all this money into, into children's, into students. And he said, that's great. But we're forgetting that children are impacted by most what happens at home. 
And my takeaway was, was this. If our churches are going to be strong, our families have to be strong. If our families are struggling, the church is going to struggle. And as churches, we need to make sure our families are not struggling and they have the resources they need to have a godly home. And that's something we as a church may need to think about and pray about, about how we can be involved in some kind of ministry like that to strengthen families. Someone hooked on pornography, you know what they do? They think, I'll only look once. And they look once and then they're hooked and they continue to look again and again and they ruin their lives. Sometimes people are tempted by money. They work unnecessary overtime just to make more money. You know what that does? That keeps you away from church. That keeps you away from worship. That keeps you away from fellowshipping with other believers and it affects your relationship with Christ. Someone may say, well, I only try this once. There are some things that you only try once that can kill you. Or maybe you're dating someone you say, well, we'll just lay on the bed or lay on the couch and watch a movie or, or TV and talk and then one thing leads to another. You see, Satan is smart. Satan is not stupid. And things that seem small or insignificant to us can cause enormous consequences and lead to destruction. And if we welcome temptation rather than resist it, desire conceives, and if not turned away immediately, it produces sin and it leads to death. You see, the teaching of Scripture is clear. The fault of our sin lies with us. The problem is at the core of who you and I are. You know who we are at the core? Isaiah told us in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, Our righteousness is like filthy rags. Meaning at the core, we are sinful. At the core, we are unrighteous. And notice in verse 12, and in these verses, there's a contrast that James presents. In verse 12 that we looked at last week, James says, Life is given to those who endure trials. However, in verse 15, he says, Death is produced in those who, who give in to sin and temptation and allow sin to run its course. Just as trials are part of life, so are temptations. And your spiritual maturity is not seen in how often you face temptation. But your spiritual maturity is seen in how often you resist the temptation. The more spiritually mature you are, the more temptations, I believe, you will face. And make sure when you're tempted that you don't make the wrong choice. Make the right choice. Choose what God desires, not what you desire. Choose what satisfies God and not you. Temptation is powerful. Temptation is destructive. But remember, it is our faith that overcomes the world. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The last thing I want to point out real quickly is temptation provides an opportunity. Verse 16 to 18, he says, Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. By his own choice, he gave us a new birth by the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. 
James is emphasizing the fact in verse 16 that God, again, does not tempt anyone to sin. He said, don't be deceived. God's not the one tempting you. And then verses 17 and 18, he makes this point. He says, instead, God gives good gifts to his children, including the ability to endure trials and overcome temptation." And you see, we need to see temptation and trials as opportunities. As opportunities for us to demonstrate our loyalty to God. As opportunities for us to demonstrate our faith in God. As opportunities for us to rejoice in the goodness of God. And you say, why should we rejoice in God's goodness? He tells us in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, we see God's goodness is unchanging. We can rejoice in the goodness of God because the goodness of God is unchanging. He says, With Him there is no variation or shadow cast by turning. You see, God is Creator. He does not change like the heavens do. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. It's the same God we serve today and for eternity. And I'm thankful, and I hope you are too, that we don't serve a God that changes. Can you imagine serving a God that changes all the time? It'd be like trying to hit a moving target. Excuse me. And not only is God's goodness unchanging, God's goodness is undeserved. It says by his own choice in verse 18. It was God's choice to love us. It was God's choice to give us new birth by the word of truth. By the the word being the gospel. It is through the gospel, it is through Christ that God brings people to life. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. We don't deserve God's peace. We don't deserve God's love. It's freely given. It's a gift from God. And verse 18 says, He chose to give it to us. You ever received a gift you didn't deserve? I have. I remember in California, on one Sunday, someone presented a a check to me in an envelope. There was no name on it. It wasn't from the person who gave it to me. I opened the check, and I was floored by the graciousness of the person who gave Joni and I that check. I didn't deserve that check. But I was thankful that that person gave that to us because it came at a time when we needed it. And another gift I didn't deserve is is my wife. I say that because tomorrow's Valentine's Day. (laughs) I don't deserve my wife. But God gave me to her as a gift. And by the way, guys, if you want to cheat Valentine's, tomorrow White Castle has the love cube for $14.59. So... All right, just throwing that out there. But God gives us things we don't deserve. Salvation is something we don't deserve, but God chose to give it to us. The other thing about God's goodness is it's unending. God's goodness is unending. He says we are the first fruits of his creatures. That's a way of referring to Christians who in the context of the book of James We're the first generation to believe in Christ. James is referring to first century Christians, but it applies to all of us who put our faith in Christ. It carries the idea of of a foretaste of what is to come. 
It's the idea of what God has done in our lives by changing our hearts and making us new. It's a foreshadowing of what is to come when he will make all things new. And because of our new birth, we'll be part of the new heaven. We'll be part of the new earth where there'll be no more trials. There'll be no more temptation. No more pain. No more suffering. No more sin. No more death. And as first fruits of the gospel, we are to model for the world to see what God created to begin with. But if we give into temptation and we allow the world to infiltrate our lives, we will mar the image that God wants us to portray. And our testimony and our witness of what Christ has done will be ineffective. When faced with temptation and even trials, think about the truth of the gospel. Think about the goodness of God. Think about how God conquered sin and suffering through the death and the resurrection of Christ so we can turn to Him in our temptation and so we can trust Him in our trials. Never forget that God is a good, good God. Never forget that God is good all the time and all the time that He is good, even in the times of testing and the times of temptation. Don't be fooled by the temptations of Satan. They may seem safe. They may seem innocent. They may seem satisfying and delicious at first, but they will never satisfy because you will always want more. And it will lead to death. And as the saying goes, if you play with fire, you'll get burned. So whatever sin maybe you're flirting with this morning whatever deception you're buying into whatever desires you're trying to fulfill run away before it's too late as it will greatly hurt you it will greatly hurt your relationship with God and I promise you it's going to hurt others as well understand temptation is in no way from God It's a product of evil that presents us a choice, either to submit to God or to your own sinful desires. And it provides us an opportunity for you to demonstrate your faithfulness to God and to demonstrate the goodness of God. And if you want to have a faith that works, just say no to temptation. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never asked Jesus to come into your life. Maybe you think that you're too far gone, that you're not worthy of God's salvation. I would say to you this morning that none of us are worthy of God's salvation. As James said, he freely gave it to us because he loves us. And I want you to know this morning that God loves you. And if you've never given your life to Christ, I want to encourage you this morning to to come down to this front. We'll be glad to show you how you can give your life to Christ, how He can become your Savior and your Lord and change your life forever. But maybe you've given your life to Christ. My question is you, or how are you responding to the temptations of life? Are you submitting to God or are you submitting to your own sinful desires? Or maybe you need to come this morning because you know someone who's hurting. Maybe you know someone who's walking this road of giving into temptation. They're satisfying their own desires and the desires of the world instead of turning to Christ. 
whether it's you struggling or someone else that's struggling with temptation, I would ask you to come to this altar and pray and ask God to help you or for this other person to release their grip or your grip on temptation and take hold of Jesus. Just come this morning and ask God to help you say no to temptation and yes to Him. Or maybe there are other decisions you need to make this morning. Maybe it's the decision of baptism. Maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you've never been baptized. Maybe it's church membership. God's calling you to be a a member of Red House Baptist Church. Or whatever decision you need to make this morning, I ask you to respond in obedience to Him. We're going to pray, then we're going to have a song of commitment. And I just want to ask you to respond as God is leading to to respond, not to my message, but to his word and his spirit. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you this morning and we just thank you for your goodness and for your love. And Father, we just thank you, God, that you've given us your love, you've given us your grace, you've given us your mercy. God, you've given us so much that we don't deserve. And Father, the least that we can do to say thanks, Father, is not to give into temptation, but to focus on our relationship with you and to think about your goodness, think about your faithfulness. And because, God, you have been faithful to us, may we be faithful to you. And Father, if there's someone here this morning who's, who's struggling with temptation. Father, I pray this morning they would come to this altar and they would just ask you to restore them, to forgive them. God, may they know that they have not passed the point of no return. Or God, maybe there are those this morning who have loved ones or family members or friends who are struggling with temptation, God. Maybe they just need to come and pray for that person to release their grip on temptation and be free in you. Father, maybe there's someone here who's never given their life to you. God, I pray this morning, whether they're watching online or they're in this building this morning, they would make the decision to receive Jesus into their life, Lord. God, I just thank you for this time we've had to worship. Thank you for your love. And God, my prayer is that each one of us here this morning would respond to your message the way that you would have us to respond. May we choose to please you, satisfy you, and live for you and not ourselves. And it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. If you need to come this morning, the altar is open. Or maybe you need to just uh, speak to me and pray with me, and I'd love to talk to you. But let's stand as we sing this morning.